I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. Joining me on this special episode of Let's Talk Dune is Jesse D'Astasio, and we're going to be talking about the Dune toys. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me. Hello, everybody out there in podcast world. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, before we get really into the into the you know meat and potatoes here, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, who you are and maybe your history in toys? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I uh, I'm currently one of the co-creators and co-hosts of Toy Pizza on YouTube, which is a co-production with Frederator Studios, and we uh, do about two videos a week and cover all things collectibles. But, uh, but, you know, normally we're focused on action figures and, and things like that. Um, Dune is a, popular, is a popular topic for myself, my co-host less so, but I try <laughs> to sneak in there whenever I can. Um, I, I also, uh, for the day job, I run Erie Theory Entertainment, which is a boutique licensing agency. So I'm, I deal with a lot of intellectual property rights, um, you know, making publication deals, making toy deals, merchandise deals. And, um, you know, Dune is something that's always fascinated me from a licensing standpoint as well. And it's, um, it's sort of, uh, you know, one of those great properties I would love to get my hands on and, and do something with. Now, were you, uh, have toys always been a super passion of yours? Yeah. Yeah. From, you know, a very young age. Uh, I was always sort of customizing them and cutting them up and repainting them. And, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get a job in, as a, uh, you know, unpaid intern at a toy company while I was still in college and uh, just kind of rode the wave from there. Wow. Very, very cool. I have to say, uh, in regards to um, toy pizza, I can't remember the last time I went on a toy hunt, hmm. but I watched um, the Mario episode. And I, yeah. saw, I saw that Bowser, and I was like, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> Started driving around to the different stores, seeing see if they had it. I haven't found it yet, but at some point. Well, they're, they're out there. That's the uh, World of Nintendo line by Jack Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Mario treats us very well. You know, there's a lot of, there's a huge audience out there on YouTube for Mario. Um, and I would say second only to Power Rangers, which is probably, you know, we do anything Power Rangers, we get, X amount of views like clockwork. Wow. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk about your interest in Dune. Did did are you interested in the books and the movie, or or just strictly the toys? I'm a very late in life Dune reader. 
Okay. The Dune had an impact on me as a kid as well. Um, my grandmother, you know, we they used to have picture books for every movie, regardless if it was rated R or not. And uh, my grandmother was a bit senile, and she bought me um, Dune and Blade Runner picture books. And <laughs> I was probably five years old, I would say. Um, so not sort of the type of visuals you necessarily want to expose a young child to. But I, I was obsessed with Star Wars, and she sort of either thought that was a part of Star Wars or, you know, sort of uh, – kind of fit that mold. So she, um, she bought them for me. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember looking at that Dune storybook and really being warped, you know, really just not understanding the grotesqueness of David Lynch's vision and, you know, why these characters weren't sort of the, um, you know, the very clear cut archetypes that Han and Luke and Darth Vader were, you know? Right. It's a very gruesome reality that he he painted with that movie, and uh, it, it it even just surprises me that they made toys of it. You know, like yeah, some of the characters are just blatantly disgusting. Um, yeah, you know, I I I think though, you know, look, the Lynch film has its detractors. I actually love the Lynch film, however imperfect they may be, uh, <laughs> and I I actually think like the brutality of the book is there in the Lynch film, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the books are, there are horrific things that happen, you know, from when Paul sort of transitions into the emperor, he is wiping out millions of people, you know, right. Right. And, and does so and mentions it very casually. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I understand people's criticism of the film, you know, certainly I totally get that. But I think actually it, it matches and it kind of extrapolated a lot of stuff uh, better than the books in some regards. Interesting. I found this interesting. What, like, what do you think just the brutality in general is? Um, is, is well, I, I would have a hard time if I was hired by Hollywood. And I'll go on my sort of what Hollywood should do next, Jack, later. But um, – I would have a really hard time designing a better still suit than I think David Lynch did. Okay. All right. Have you seen the uh, sci-fi miniseries? <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think um, Croatian World War II surplus medical scrubs counts as a still suit. You know? <laughs> it's totally what their budget afforded them. Right, right. Plus, they barely have anything covering their heads. Not that yeah. Lynch did either, but... I mean, you know, look, Lynch lost an opportunity with not having cloaks on them. That would have been great. You know, there was also... Um, I think that they had a sort of a bigger mask than just the still suit hose, right? Right, yeah. They have, it's like a... a like Almost like a painter's mask that just, like, right. goes over. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's perfect by any stretch, but anytime I'm sort of, you know drawing a sketch of, you know, a Fremen, I, it, it goes back to, to the, the Lynch outfit. I find that a lot of uh, artists that do draw uh, Dune stuff, like the on art and stuff, they do also go back to the Lynch designs yeah. quite well, often. You know, you can take Paul, Paul Pope, who's probably one of the, I would say he's probably one of the highest paid comic and commercial artists right now. And 
all of his Dune stuff really has, you know, it has that Lynch visual language to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would consider him to be, um, you know, he's a, he's really a, a master at what he does, and he would be a perfect person to sort of, you know, either tell that story in comics or to help a film kind of figure out where to go, you know. Now, I mean, you mentioned before how they were really putting out, like, all these kind of books and stuff, no yeah. matter if a film was rated R or, or not. Was it typical for a movie, even, I mean, even back then this movie was kind of not very popular. Was it typical for a toy line to come out for something like this? Yeah, I mean, in a post-Star Wars world, everything was merchandised, you know. Ah. Uh, even to this day, George Lucas has made more money on the merchandise than he ever has on the films, you know. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, anything, especially anything sci-fi in the early 80s, it was like, oh, we could have a fraction of Star Wars's market share, and that is a billion dollars. So let's absolutely turn this into a toy line. And you know, and I'm sure you guys know David Lynch was under consideration for Return of the Jedi, and it, I don't think it's any coincidence that – you know, his path after he did, um, was it Elephant Man? Uh, his path was bound for sci-fi, whether it was Return of the Jedi or with Dune. You know? right. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see that. I I just, it still baffles me. I mean, you know, even growing up in that era, you know, I had all the, I have tons of Star Wars figures, but I don't remember these, like, really crazy off <laughs> things, yeah. you know? Uh what do you think was going through the designer's mind when they took a look at the characters and, and how they would design them for kids? Um, well, I, I think there have been some successful uh, reductions, you know, like RoboCop and Rambo. Those were rated R films that were turned into cartoons that were turned into really pretty cool toy lines that, that had a couple waves each and had a like to them. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm sure they probably just had a couple movie stills to go on. Um, you know, that may be part of the reason why Paul is portrayed in his, um, Atreides sort of military garb instead of a still suit or, you know, not later offered in a still suit. Um, so they probably only had a handful of images and, and a script to kind of start the production. It takes, you know, easily six months to a year, to sculpt and manufacture and ship an action figure. So they would have been, they would have been out well before any special effects were added or, you know, possibly the principal photography was finished. Hmm. I guess that explains why they've got figures of the, or play sets for these vehicles that are barely even featured in the film. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I saw those and I was like, why? I mean, what was the demand for this two minute spice harvester? Right. You know, but I guess they probably saw the pictures and were like, oh, kids will want whatever that does. So Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just any toy company back then would have been very smart to just mimic what Kenner was doing with Star Wars. And, and I think you see it there. You have role play items. You know, you have the starter car blaster and dagger. Um, you know, they just follow the mold of of what Star Wars uh, had sort of proven at the marketplace. Right. Right. What about like what was the, what was the design like back then? Were these kind of basic or kind of what you would expect to come out for a toy line? 
Yeah, these are these are pretty on par with what was available in the marketplace. The I think that the you know the head sculpts and the likeness were actually pretty good and pretty advanced for their time. Yeah. You know, a lot of the Star Wars do not look like the talent at all. Um, but you know, LJN was sort of making Thundercats and advanced Dungeon and Dragon. So you see, uh, you know, their big selling point was battle magic, battle matic action, which was a little lever on their back that moved their waist or moved their hands. So Dune inherited this sort of what I guess would be a patented sort of toy mechanism. And uh, so you can kind of make the figures dance by pulling the uh, the levers on their back, the really? same as, you know, Thundercats and, uh, yeah, D&D. I-, I was surprised looking at some of the some of the pictures, the amount of articulation in them. I mean, I expected it to be kind of Star Wars, just shoulder and then, uh, you know, legs. But it looks like they, yeah. can, they can actually have ball joints in their in their shoulders. Yeah. Now these, the Dune figures are a little bit bigger than Star Wars. So they had a bit more real estate to, to deal with articulation. Um, and LJN really had one of the first predecessors of a, of a modern day ball joint in the shoulder. Um, it's not, it's not sort of a complete ball joint. There is some limit to it, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a early precursor of, you know, the figures we see now, which have, as much or more movement than, you know, the human body does. Right. Right. Uh, that's really interesting. I, I, I see the picture here of uh, sting as uh, fade Rutha. And he mm-hmm. has the infamous milking cat as one of his accessories. Yep. I think that, that is just, I don't even know where to go with that. This is, you know, we can just write the milking cat off to Lynch. I, I don't think, um, I do not recall a milking cat ever being in play in any of the books. Um, yeah. You know, we'll just, we'll give that one to Lynch. <laughs> so was, how many lines did they have? Was it just like one line and, and it kind of failed or did they try and keep going with this thing? Yeah, there was only the, the initial line, which apparently did not do well in the marketplace. They had, two other figures that they had shown in a catalog, which was Bernie Halleck played by Patrick Stewart and uh, lady Jessica, um, which were never manufactured as far as I know. Hmm. Yeah. I see a picture here of the, uh, the magazine with them in it as well as the other figures that were done. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, I mean, since we're on the subject of the, the figures that weren't done, I, I believe you have a prototype for Gurney. Is that correct? Yeah, I was lucky enough to track down. Um, it's a it's a resin copy of a prototype um, okay. from a former LJN employee, and uh, you know it's it's a prized jewel in my collection for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's a great figure. I I would like to get Lady Jessica as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, I have my feelers out there for it. Nice. Do you, do you have the other figures in the line or? Um, in, in different stages. Yes. Okay. I think I still need a Paul Atreides. I, I'm also trying to buy multiples so I can customize them. You know, I want to have Paul in a still suit and Gurney in the Atreides uniform. So, um, you know, I, I have, you know, bits and pieces floating around. Yeah. I like the worm. I'd like to pick the worm up at some point. I think that yeah. that's just kind of a, 
unique thing to have. It has. Yeah, someone needs to make one in scale with them. You know, that would be the size of uh, a large dog. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought it was a lot bigger than than what it is. I mean, looking at the pictures now, I, I realize that it only stands about as tall as them when it's perked up. So right, it's a it's a, it's a little maker, I guess. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, like how they were were prototyping these these guys. I, I, I've seen the pictures, and it kind of comes apart. Uh, is that typical for? Uh, a prototype of that age? Um, yeah, you know, you the at the stage of the sample I have, articulation is not added on yet. That would have been done in a tooling model, which would happen usually in China or Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is sort of, this is the stage of sales and presentation. And, you know, um, this is prior to the factory sort of getting their hands on it and, making the cuts and figuring out how the tooling arrangement happens. Um, so it's kind of like a very pure form in the lifespan of a toy. You know, it's the sculpt is done, it's unpainted, it's very raw. And, you know, it's before it gets sort of transmogrified into something that moves and, you know, is functional. Hmm. Looking at at seeing at that stage and uh, you know seeing how they've they finished them, do you think that they did the process right? Like, did they make a, a solid figure here, or um, you know could they have done, they have done things better for the time period? Um, no, I I think they they did a great job, um, especially considering you know it was not a sophisticated, uh, you know there were not these huge multinational toy companies back then, you know, this is, this is the wild west of toys. And, um, you know, Kenner was just a tiny little toy company in Ohio. And, you know, um, so yeah, they, they, they did as best they could with the sort of technology and things available at the time. And I would argue the prototype I like better than the final product because, you know, the articulation they used back then is very ugly. You know, it's not aesthetically pleasing and it really breaks up the flow and the sculpt of the figure. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I quite like seeing them in, in that sort of state. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, you're talking here about, you know, the, the, what I would almost consider like the golden age of, of toys, mostly because it was yeah. our, our age. Uh, do you feel in general that, more articulation has caused uh, some of the magic to be lost? Uh, um, yeah, I know I'm in the minority, but I do think, you know, there's there, there was a turning point really in like the early 2000s, uh, and it's really due to uh, Jesse Falcon, who was at uh, Toy Biz, which was owned um, by Marvel. Mm-hmm. So he really would, you know, he would regularly take trips to Asia and he would buy all these Japanese toys and they were ahead of us in terms of articulation and hiding the seams of joints and, and all that stuff. And really Marvel Legends was the first sort of Western toy line to kind of take what they were doing in Asia and really utilize it in a mass market toy line. Um, I think the downside to that is that we lost some of the 
durability and the pose of figures. You know, like you go back and you look at some of the Iron Man they did and each finger moves. And that's amazing. You know, that's a technological breakthrough. But that doesn't make for a toy that a kid can sort of throw around the room or can bang against, you know, a villain toy. Um, you know, it's I guess that's the eternal struggle. It's like, do you have functionality or do you have aesthetics? And at some point you have to sacrifice one or the other, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I remember back to like, um, you know, even the Robocop or or aliens and predator toys like they didn't have a lot of articulation to them but i loved them i mean i thought that they were i would set them up on my shelf and you know kind of just stare at them rather than play with them most of the time but then uh you know you look at the toys that they have now they've got so many joints and stuff they don't i don't know they just don't look real for a matter of sense like i i'm my imagination's lost on them because of all the cracks and stuff but yeah there's a happy medium but i I have a hard time sort of picking out a single toy or a single toy line that achieves that. You know, some of them have certain levels of, you know, that holy trinity, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, as we as we move along here, was this line a success compared to other movie lines? Or was it, I mean, it only went one wave, so I guess not really. But considering uh, the movie, was it just kind of... Uh, did it mediocre or did it do what they wanted? Um, I suspect it probably did pretty well in pre-orders, but as soon as the film hit theaters, they would have, uh, you know, clearance that out pretty quickly. Hmm. Uh, well, so, so doing that makes it kind of probably pretty rare. So is that the appeal for a collector today to look at these figures? You know, it's weird. It's only within the last five or six years that these secondary market prices on Dune have shot up dramatically. I used to come by them all the time on eBay and at, you know, in secondhand stores and they would be dirt cheap. It's something, there's something in the ether that people are kind of going back now and checking out this line. And I don't know. I, unfortunately I don't think it's, it's the popularity of Dune. I wish it was. There's yeah. something else that is sort of pushing people back into this line, and it's it's becoming very competitive to get your hand on on uh, things at a good price. Yeah, you know, I, I took a look at because, like I said, I wanted to get the worm, and I was just yeah. the price. I was like, really, wow. I mean, I wasn't expecting people to be all about these at all. Yeah, there there must be, you know. There are pockets of Fremen of us that, uh, <laughs> that are after these toys. It must be. Huh. Well, you know, you said that you like the film. And um, yeah. what what would you have liked to have seen in the toy line if, you know, you would have had a say uh, in what would have come out? Um, you know, actually, I think that I think the toy line would have done better to be three and three quarter inches, you know, to be in scale with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh I think uh, well, you'd need uh, Peter DeVries. Am I saying that right? Yeah, DeVry. I, DeVry. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. You got to have a you know a Brad Dorif figure. Come on. Yeah. Need, um. I mean, I I don't know all of them. I would want all every character, even like um, Ben Rear. Is that the guy that they cut out of the film that was in the book? Uh, Fenrir. 
Yeah, he was. He's at the very end. Has yeah. Fenring. Yeah, right, right. He's in the 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 showdown scene. Right. Yeah, but you don't uh, see him any anywhere else. Right. Yeah, like I mean, even though you know, I don't really. I I think the biggest failing of the Lynch film was the Sartre car. Um, especially now that we've sort of been exposed to what Yaradovsky would have done and Mobius's design for the Sartre car, it's mm-hmm. like. The Lynch's starter car are just men in trash bags. It's not. There's no menace whatsoever. Right. Yeah. No. They, they look like the radiation cleanup crew, basically. Yeah. That's uh, what they've got going on. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, they even have uh, Piter's like plane as a as a toy. I think that's what it is. One of the ships. It just seems weird that they wouldn't have thought to make to make his character. So yeah, I don't know. And then always, um, you know, Jack Nance, the the constant Lynch bit player, you know, from Twin Peaks and uh, every other, you know, Racerhead. Um, he plays one of the Harkonnen handmaidens, I guess. And that would be great to have a Jack Nance figure. <laughs> if I'm saying that, I got to look that up. I think that's his name. Jack Nance. Yeah, that's him. Okay, I got it. Good, good. Now, I see that uh, you sent me some pictures before we started talking, and uh, yeah. you've made some some custom Dune figures here. Yeah, um, I guess I, you know, I'll put them up on my Tumblr when this goes live, and we can kind of link people to that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I got tired of waiting for three and three quarter inch Dune figures, so I started to make my own. Um, the uh, this sort of uh, Paul-esque one is very cartoony. You know, it's kind of like I was thinking along the lines of what what would Hairgay's Tintin and Dune look like together, you know, <laughs> how I kind of put that one together. And then the, uh, the fade is a bit more realistic because I just found this loose head that really had such great character to it, and it kind of fit perfectly. Like, it looks like Sting, you know? It really does. It really does. Uh, I actually, when I saw it, I, I, I checked to make sure it just wasn't a repaint of the uh, actual head because it, it yeah, really does look like him. I have a Chani I'm, I'm uh, finishing up as well, so I'll be sure to share photos of that when it's ready. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, the the the, the Paul one almost reminds me of, like, it would be a show called, like, The Adventures of Moadib or something, you know, a cartoon. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like I, that. It, it could kind of be uh, Leto too, as well. You know, it's uh, it's kind of it looks like a young sort of yeah. more of a boy. But Paul was—I mean, they aged him up in the film. He was relatively young in the book, right? Yeah, he, he was, was very—he was very young in the book. He was, uh, I think, fifteen, sixteen, somewhere twelve. Yeah, he's—he's he's very, very young at the beginning, for sure. But uh, of course. Uh, I don't think that we can uh, talk about your custom toys without bringing up uh, some action figures coming out soon that uh, have to do with toy pizza. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, we we are doing our own toy line, and it's called Knights of the Slice. And it, it's a loving homage to uh, Takasatsu or Sentai sort of programming from Japan, you know, which of which came in Rider and Power Rangers and, you know, a bunch of different properties came out of this genre. Right. Uh, 
So we've uh, we've designed our own, and it's kind of uh, using the motifs of that genre. And uh, you can see we kind of put pizza slices all over the costume, and you know tried to uh, make our own image of that. I love it. I think it's great. Uh, having watched watched your show and seen them kind of go through the designs, it wasn't until this most recent photo that I really caught all of the pizza slices on it uh, that really stuck out for me. I think it looks great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're um, we're sort of debating crowdfunding it. We, we have a great partner who's going to manufacture, um, but I think we can sort of get the word out in a bigger way by crowdfunding. So we're looking at that campaign now. And um, if you want more info, you can always check um, – tumblr.toypizza.com or youtube.com slash toypizza. Well, I want to thank you for, for talking about the Dune stuff. Uh, before we go, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Toy Pizza show. I mean, what can you tell our audience that, that might get them interested in uh, checking you guys out? Well, I, I will do that, but first I have, to, I have to give you my pitch to Hollywood for what to do with Dune next. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. And I'm the guy to do this. I want, you know, I expect calls any day now from <laughs> and William Morris and everyone else. Um, so what I would do is I would reboot. Well, I wouldn't say reboot, but I would continue the cinematic Dune universe. And I would actually start at book two and I would softly assume Lynch's film was canon. And I say softly because we would sort of take the still suit design and what they established in that film, but really get to the fun part. Because I, I actually personally consider the second book to be the best book. Really? Uh, I really do. And I think film, you know, starting a film with conspirators in a room plotting to kill the emperor is just a great setup. And it automatically lets you data dump and teach the audience everything you need to know about Paul Muad'Dib. And it identifies who the antagonists are very easily. And it's just, it's such a great launching board to sort of, uh, you know, tell that story. And then you go through, you know, the scenes and the themes in the story and you have your climax be the sort of battle, if I'm remembering this right, it's been a few years since I've read it, but uh, it's uh, Skydal, the face dancer. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, Skytail, yeah. Skytail, yeah. So you have him sort of holding the Atreides babies hostage with a knife, and you have Paul, who's now blind, and we see Paul project his consciousness into the baby. He knows where to throw his knife, or, how, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. And he kills Skydal, and, you know, that's the sort of climax of, of the... Uh, movie but it, it, it there is a easily digestible film in the second book i think you know the only hope for the first book is really an hbo series and i don't know how likely that is you know i think that in some respects the sci-fi films may have tarnished hollywood's understanding of the marketability of dune hmm. and i don't think that's entirely fair um so I think that, you know, I, we, we all know about Peter Berg's plan to sort of trim the first book down into this tight action film, and maybe it worked, maybe it wouldn't have. Um, but I would say, you know, the first film, unfortunately, however much we love the long-windedness of it and the level of detail, it's 
that's a lot of baggage for a modern day film audience. You know, there was a lot of setup. It is a nuanced, long spanning film. Yeah. If you start at the second film, you, everything is in place within that first scene. You know who the main character is. You know who are plotting to kill him. You have your story arc. You have your stakes, and it's all laid out in the first. You know, that first scene. Yeah. Um, and Very and. Yeah, it's it's totally doable. It is. I see it already in my head as a screenplay, and uh, I'm ready to write it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. You know, I when we talk about it on the show. We get a lot of questions about you know, will this be back at film? Uh, my standpoint is that it should be an HBO, AMC production. I think that that's like the only way to really do, especially the first film correctly, is do yeah. like a long kind of you know. 12, 15 episode deal to just do the one book. But no one has ever uh, approached the angle of starting with Dune Messiah. And I think that's really interesting. We just uh, earlier this week recorded our review of Dune Messiah. um, Mm -hmm. And it's probably my least favorite book. Interesting. Okay. But I do agree with you that it, would make an interest a more interesting film, and I think it's just because the dialogue could be a lot more expressive with facial expressions and stuff in, in that book. Yeah. I mean, I think that the weight could could come through a lot more easier than Dune or God Emperor of Dune. I mean, Children right. of Dune. I think you could do all right on on television or film, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, just you know, just picture it in your head. It, the the film opens up. You have this princess who wants to marry her husband. You have the navigators who are these mutated humans. You have Skytel, this changeling, and they're all in a room and they're all plotting to kill the God Emperor of the the universe. Like that's compelling. It is. It is. I, I, you know, I had a really honest, I hadn't looked at it that way. And I think that that's a really great way to look at it. Uh, I'll definitely bring that up uh, in the main show too, probably. Cause that's, that's cool. That's a cool. Uh, I will so- tell you that we, when we talked to Brian, he said that they are discussing movie or TV rights. He couldn't tell us what, but yeah, they're in talks with someone. So no, look, the, you know, the reality I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work on several film properties and several television properties in a small way, whether it was, you know, the licensing for Lord of the Rings at New Line or Twilight or Hunger Games or even Walking Dead. And I had a very small role in some of the merchandise for Walking Dead. Um, so, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, been, to be exposed to uh, the Hollywood machine and how these companies work and there Dune will always be optioned. You know, there's always going to be studios and networks taking an option out on them. Mm-hmm. But the reality is I don't think that there, I don't think there's a way to crack book one for today's audience who consumes Game of Thrones and Walking Dead and, you know, um, uh, Breaking Bad and things like that. I, I don't think there's a way without gutting what's great about the book to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would definitely be extremely difficult. I, 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 I agree. I, it's, it's hard to imagine a world where they could do it right and please everybody. So I don't know if I would take the standing that you did with uh, Lynch's being correct. Cause 
I find so many off things, especially the rain at the end. I mean, I like the designs, yeah. but but I don't know about the story. Yeah, you know, I I'm curious if the rain was you know Lynch's machination, or you know, he always says that he was locked out of the editing room and and things like that. I, I don't know that his pure vision would have been any better. Mm-hmm. Um, the rain feels very Hollywood ending to me. Um, I don't know if it was in his original script or not, because really the the terraforming comes about what in God Emperor? It's yeah. centuries, right? It, yeah, it takes it takes over three thousand years. Yeah. Um, so I I digress there to answer your question about toy pizza. Um, <laughs> you know, if anything, me and you have talked about is remotely interesting. I I think your audience would dig toy pizza. Uh, we try to sort of cover all of these stories. You know that. The Gurney Halleck prototype, that was a great story. Most people had never knew it existed. So we try to uncover stuff like that. We try to talk about modern-day toys and collectibles, and um, I would argue it is the best-looking content on YouTube for toys. I, I would say I agree with you there. I, I just stumbled across it by chance. I don't even remember why, and I went back and watched uh, the entire catalog. It was about a, probably about a month and a half ago, a month or so ago. Uh, and you recently changed your format to, you were doing like a 10-ish minute shows and now it's like an hour, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, part of the reason is we thought it was going to be less work. It's turned out not to be because we're perfectionists and we're, especially our, edi- our editor, Nikki Fung, he, he just wants to add more and more footage and it looks great, but it is, you know, we all work full-time jobs. You know, right. I run company and they are employees of Frederator. And we thought the long form would allow us to go more in depth and would be less work because we don't have any edits. It's just boom, it's one chunk and you do it. The other reason you do favors longer content. You know, there is a invisible spice melange on YouTube that drives who your videos get served up to, how much revenue you make, you know, there's all the it's it's controlled by the the uh, space guild, no doubt about it. Um, so part of that this year, they're very into long form content. They want longer videos. They want to put more ads on videos. Mm-hmm. And so they're favoring those in search results. And, you know, we we want to be the best at YouTube. So we are pivoting to what the overlords want to see. And uh, that's part of the reason for the long form. I do remember now what turned me on to you guys. It was uh, Vsauce 3. I think Jake mentioned it. Oh, yeah. In a, in a well, episode. you know, Jake and Kevin and all them have been amazing to us. Jake has, you know, we have grown to 18,000 subscribers in nine months, and our two biggest bursts were because Jake mentioned us. You know, he's been amazing. And we're actually working on official collaborations for Vsauce 2 and 3, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. So that should be amazing. Oh, wow. Very, very cool. Very cool. Um, just some some closing things here. I, this will probably go up after uh, New York Comic Con, but uh, I'm hoping to see you there. That, that should be oh, yeah. a big it's, event. We're, uh, we're going to um, sort of – we're going to post our locations on Instagram when we're at the show. So hopefully uh, we can chat. That would be great. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, – I want one of those pins, man. So I'm coming. Oh yeah, for you. 
<laughs> I'll put it back to you. No question about it. Cool. Sweet. Well, thanks again, uh, Jesse, for, for coming on the show and talking Dune and toys in general. Uh, Toy Pizza on YouTube is the place to find more Jesse. I'll put links to his uh, Tumblr and some of his other stuff in the show notes at uh, dunesoccerpodcast.com. So... Uh, if you'd like to be a part of the show and the conversation, you can always join us live at dunesagapodcast.com slash live, or you can email us at dunesagapodcast at gmail.com and be a part of our listener feedback show that we put up every month. We love to hear what you're saying and uh, reply. And if you have any questions for Jesse, uh, please pass them along our way and we will get them to him and get him a response from him if you want to hear something about the toys that we didn't talk about. So once again, for the Dune Saga Podcast, and a big thank you to Jesse Distagio, I'm David Moulton. And may Shai Halud clear the path before you.